take uh, the Word of God with me this evening and turn to the book of Exodus in chapter 12. Exodus and uh, chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12 is uh, identified as the chapter where the uh, Passover was instituted, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so it stands as a, a point of reference that throughout the remainder of God's Word, both in the Old and the New Testament, it will be constantly referenced. And in this chapter, we also have, as we studied last week, uh, the 10th plague with the death of the firstborn. And um, in our text this evening, we're going to consider a summary of the departure of the Exodus. Uh, now, I say a summary because the actual documentation of the Exodus is found in chapter 13. It actually tells us where they went. Why did they not go straight to Canaan? Why did they go south? Uh, and he gives us the reason in chapter 13 because he didn't want them to have to face the Philistines and to have war immediately and to be discouraged and return back to Egypt. And so he brought them uh, another way. And so that's explained to us in chapter 13. But what we have here in Exodus chapter 12 is, is a summary of the Exodus. Now the question we ask ourselves is why would God repeat it? Why would he give this, the summary and then in chapter 13 tells us that they left? I think it's much like uh, what we find in the beginning of uh, chapter 12. In the beginning he talks about the Passover, God speaking to Moses. Then we have a repetition where we find the Passover observed by the children of Israel. And then at the end of chapter 12 he mentions again, we'll see that next week, he mentions again the observation of the Passover three times. And so there is repetition there. And when God repeats something, it's certainly important. But sometimes we learn some additional things from things that are repeated where we have information that may not be provided in the other account. And I think this is the case here in Exodus chapter 12. And we're going to look at the summary. We're going to begin reading here in Exodus chapter 12. We'll read verse 31 um, through verse 42. And I want us to think here about this being a summary of how, not the, just the fact that they left, but how did they leave Egypt? And so we have a, a summary here provided for us in Exodus 12, beginning in verse 31. So let's stand together for uh, the reading of God's Word. And let's look at uh, this uh, summary, the summary of the Exodus. Exodus chapter 12, verse 31, and God's word says, And he called for Moses and Aaron by night. That's Pharaoh called for them by night. He probably sent messengers. And said, Rise up and get you forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as ye have said. Now the reason why I say that Pharaoh probably sent messengers is because back in chapter 11, uh, Moses said, when Pharaoh said, You're going to see my face no more, Moses said, You've said right. I'm not going to see your face no more. And so here he probably sent messengers to Moses by night to tell them to leave. Uh, no doubt he would not himself, being the Pharaoh, leave his own palace in the middle of the night. He would send emissaries. He would probably be in grief from the death of his firstborn son. And so he would not leave at that time but send messengers. So we continue. He says, um, And go serve the Lord, as ye have said. 
And take your flocks and your herds, as ye have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people, that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading trowels be, being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders. So it shows us a quick departure. Have you ever done that? You've been so quick. You grab all your belongings, you put them in one of your shirt, and you wrapped up your shirt, and you took off. I've done that before. Any, anybody else have done that? Please tell me. Okay, good. We're, uh, we're in good company tonight. But they put everything in their clothes, and they put it behind their shoulders. Notice verse 35. And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses. And they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required, and they spoiled the Egyptians. And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, and six hundred and six hundred thousand on foot that were men beside children. And a mixed multitude went up also with them in flocks and herds, even very much cattle. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victuals. Now, the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. I want to bring your attention here to verse 42. Notice the expression, he says at the beginning of the verse, a night to be much observed. And then at the end, he says, this is that night of the Lord. That night of the Lord. I want to preach on, on that this evening. That night of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for that night that is mentioned as we think about that night, we think of the Passover that was instituted and the ordinance that was instituted for the children of Israel. And certainly we understand the greater meaning because Christ is our Passover. And the Lord, that night is no doubt a significant night in the life of the children of Israel, but it is also a night that is significant as it is a shadow of things that were to come. In Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for this record. Help us to learn some things that might be helpful to us this evening as we study your word. We thank you for revealing those things to us. Might we learn the reason why you gave them to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to go right into the outline here, but as I mentioned in chapter 13, we have the actual record of. Uh, where they're going to go and how God is going to lead them. He talks about uh, the fire and the cloud. And uh, he's going to lead them and the specific direction is going to get, be given in chapter 13. Uh, some more information is given in chapter 13. But here we have a, a, a summary 
before it actually happens, in a sense. Just like we had at the beginning of chapter 12, God uh, describes the Passover that is going to happen, and then they actually observed, and they do what God said when Moses communicates what God told him to the children of Israel. And so here we have a summary of really how they left Egypt. And so there's some information here for us, and I want to give you here, by way of summary, the three ways in which they left as we look at our text this evening. The first thing we're going to see in our text is that they left with massive substance. Massive substance. Then as we go down in our text, we're going to see here that they left with a mixed multitude. And then in the last portion of what we read, we're going to see that they left with a momentous reminder. And I believe by way of description, why do we have this several times? They're exodus, but we have different aspects. And here I believe we have for us described the manner in which they left Egyptian bondage. And I think God wants us to note here, not the truth or the fact that they left, but really how did they leave? And the circumstances that surrounded their departure. And so let's consider, first of all, in our text as we begin here in... um, Verse 33, let's consider first of all how they left with a massive substance. As we read in verse um, 33, the Bible says, And the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We be all dead men. And the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading trowels being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders, And the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. At the end of verse 36, he says that they spoiled the Egyptians. Now, I want us to be reminded that uh, in Egypt, everything has been destroyed. I'm not going to go there for sake of time. We spent a lot of time going through all the plagues, but we know by now there's nothing left. The animals are gone. People have died. Um... Uh, the, the wealth, the crops, everything is gone. Even the beauty of Egypt is gone. And the only thing that is really left that has any value in Egypt is the gold and the silver. Those things that could not be destroyed by natural disasters. Or, or I shouldn't say natural disasters. By God-induced disasters. That's what, uh, that's what I should say. And so... We understand, though, as we read this, that this is not something new to us who are students of the Bible. Back in Genesis chapter 15, when God was speaking to Abraham, God told Abraham uh, that uh, the the people who, uh, the the descendants of Abraham who would grow up to be a great nation, uh, would be in servitude to a nation for 400 years. But he didn't just say that they would be in servitude to a nation. For 400 years, he tells them in Genesis 15, 14, And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. And so understand here, the departure, the manner of their departure is not that the children of Israel are just leaving in freedom from Egyptian bondage. is that they are leaving with great substance. And what is remarkable is the fact that God would point us the manner in which they left in fulfillment to the prophecy that is found hundreds of years before 
that even happened. I want to consider several things about their substance and how it was given to them. As we look at our text, we see, first of all, that this substance was given urgently. If you notice in verse 33, the Bible says here, when um, the, the text ha- says in verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent upon the people that they might send them out of the land. And hey, so as soon as word uh, got uh, around that, that uh, Pharaoh told uh, send messengers to Moses to say, it's time for you to go, the people thought that even the Egyptians who uh, were hearing of the news, they were urgent, let's not wait. <laughs> It's almost like they were waiting for Pharaoh just to give the word. And now they're on board and they're urgent about the people going. And so understand when they gave, when we read that they gave of their silver and their gold to the children of Israel, they gave their substance urgently. Uh, We know in Psalm 105 verse 38, the Bible says, Egypt was glad when they departed for the fear of them fell upon them. It's almost here that uh, the, the people we know throughout the plagues come to Pharaoh on a number of occasions. On one of those, they said to Pharaoh, Knowest thou not that Egypt is destroyed? Uh, some of the sorcerers that uh, were uh, close to Pharaoh, they, they told Pharaoh himself, This is the finger of God. We, we cannot reverse those plagues. We can't stop what God has done. And so here we see that the substance that they gained was given to them urgently. There was no hesitation. I want you to think in the mind of the Egyptians, everything else is gone in the land. Their gold and the silver and their possession is all that they have left, but yet they do not hesitate to urgently give those great substance to the children of Israel. So we see this substance was given urgently, but also in our text we see that this substance was given voluntarily. If you notice in our text, and even in the prophecies about this, what would happen, there is no indication that the Egyptians were forced to do so. Uh, The Bible mentions here, for example, in in our text in verse 35, that the children of Israel did according to the word of Moses, and they borrowed of the Egyptians jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment. Now, the word borrow, don't uh, misunderstand, it's not mean, the, the idea is not that we're going to take it from you and then we're going to bring it back. The idea is they just simply asked. It would be a strange thing at this at the end here the, to, for the children of Israel to come to the Egyptian and just ask, hey, do, do you have any gold and silver in your house? And the Egyptian would say, oh yeah, here, here. Voluntarily. Uh, it was not forced. That's interesting, isn't it? You would think that they would try to retain the remaining riches that they had. You would think that there would be a sense of anger towards the children of Israel and towards the God of the children of Israel for having completely decimated the land. You, you would think that in their minds they would be hesitant to give their possessions and their substance, but they did so, the scripture tells us, voluntarily. They did so urgently, voluntarily, but also in our text we see that this substance was given graciously. Notice with me in verse 36, And the Lord gave the people, that's the children of Israel, Favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they lent unto them such things as they required. I want us to think here for just a moment the, of the word favor. That means that the children of Israel were well regarded of by the Egyptians. <laughs> Isn't that strange? Uh, go back with me to chapter 11. This was also announced. Um, notice in chapter 11, verse 2 and 3. 
Speak now in the ears of the people, and let every man borrow of his neighbor, and every woman of her neighbor jewels of silver and jewels of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So the people, when they thought of Moses, they saw Moses as being very great in the land, to be held in high esteem, a man that should be honored in the land of Egypt. It seems that there's been a reversal that the Pharaoh who would they would automatically reverence and honor, uh, now perhaps because they've seen his great failure in dealing with the plagues, that now the honor has been turned towards Moses. Back in, uh, if you go with me back in Exodus chapter 3, in verse 21, Exodus chapter 3, verse 21, the Bible says, And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. And so this, by the way, this is before anything uh, is, is done. Uh, in when God calls Moses to go, he, he tells them exactly how it's go- that's going to happen. That, by the way, the Egyptians who despise the Hebrews being shepherds will hold them in, fa- in favorable view by the time this is all said and done. Now let's be reminded this that this could only be the doing of God. In other words, there's nothing that the children of Israel could do to debate with the Egyptians to say, well, you need to be favorable towards us, but this must be the doing of God. Uh, that they would give their substance graciously. The Bible says the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So we see the substance was given urgently, it was given voluntarily, it was given graciously, but also it was given consequently. The last few words of verse 36 says, And they, the children of Israel, spoiled the Egyptians. The idea here is they took everything. They spoiled the Egyptians. Uh, By the way, Psalm 105 verse 37 says that He brought them forth, also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble person among their tribes. Now think about that statement about looking back that there was not one Israelite that was feeble. Now you you would imagine that going through all of those plagues that the the Egyptians are worn out, they're exhausted, and uh, they can't wait for the children of Israel to go out. They don't hesitate to voluntarily give of their gold and silver. They even do so graciously. But yet this substance was given consequently because it would be a great detriment to them. I want us to think here. This is the only thing that the Egyptians have left that is of value. The cattle has been destroyed. The crops have been destroyed. The beauty of the land has been completely uh, destroyed by all of the plagues. And now you would think here that they, there would be a sense in them that they would resist from giving the gold, the last thing that they have of value, but yet they have no regard for the consequences in their own lives of giving the gold and the silver. Uh, it would seem to me that the children of Israel might, might think, said, well, you don't need to give me all of that. The Bible said they didn't leave with substance. They left with great substance. And the Bible said they spoiled the Egyptians. You, you know what spoiled means? If a robber comes in the house, he takes everything. He completely empties the shelves. And so this, this substance here that was given was consequential to the Egyptians. In a sense, could it be to, to say, well, it's not the last because God is going to destroy finally their army later. But this is another form of judgment. 
upon the Egyptian, upon those who've rejected God, upon those who are uh, completely given to idolatry, and God has shown Himself true to them. And this is uh, another form of judgment completely spoiling the Egyptians. And so God lets us know here, uh, that uh, from Egypt everything everything is gone. And so how did they leave Egypt? They, they left Egypt with massive substance. Now why would that be so important? Because they were slaves. They had nothing. Now certainly you could say they had herds and flocks and those things. But the point is you don't expect the children of Israel, if they win a victory over the Egyptians, you don't expect them to leave with great substance. But yet, that's what God did. Uh, God gave the children of Israel a special blessing, not just of freedom, but also an extra, uh, an extra blessing in this deliverance, an extra blessing in this deliverance, uh, providing for them uh, on the road. And so we see here that they leave with a massive substance. But as we Continue in our text, we see that secondly, they laughed with a mixed multitude. <clears throat> so the first part is a, a physical blessing, a monetary blessing. The second one is, I don't know if it's a blessing. And I'll give you the reasons why. The Bible says in verse 37, And the children of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkoth, about 600,000 on foot that were men beside children, and a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even much cattle, and they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt, for it was not leaven, because they were thrust out of Egypt, and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victuals. So here they not only would leave with great, with a, really a, a massive substance, but they're also here leaving with a mixed multitude. I want us to consider this multitude. First of all, we note the number of this multitude. Uh, verse 37 indicates to us that there are 600,000 on foot, and it mentions the men. Now when numbering uh, the scriptures, generally, usually counts only the men. The children of Israel can be therefore estimated, if we think about children and women, we can uh, safely estimate that there are about 2 million people or more. Now think about that, that's a, that's a big number, isn't it? 2 million or more. If it's just the men, 600,000, you double that. If they're uh, all married, I'm sure there'd be some uh, singles in there. Uh, the point is that if you double that, you're almost at 1.5 million and then the children of Israel would not stick typically to one child. And so two million is a conservative figure. Um, two million people. Let's just use that number. This is, I think, most important because as we proceed to think about the journey, think about it, about the journey into the wilderness wanderings with two million people. Two million people would need to be safe. Two million people would need shelter. Two million people would need clothing. Two million people would need food. Uh, so this would be, understand, a serious undertaking, particularly for Moses as God's chosen leader, 
As I mentioned in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, when God called Moses and He says, Hey, I'm going to use you. I'm going to deliver the people and I'm going to use you to bring them out. Uh, And so let's just think for just a moment. I don't think anybody in their right mind would want that position. Leading two million people out out of Egypt. I mean, uh, just think about it here. Just the number alone. I mean, you put 10, 10 people in one room, you're going to have some issues at some point. We're talking about 2 million people. So we see the number of this multitude is certainly significant, but also we see the composition of this multitude. Notice with me verse 38, And a mixed multitude went up also with them, and flocks and herds, even very much cattle. When I'm talking about the mixed multitude, we're not talking about people and cattle. We're talking about different types of people. Uh, Notice the expression here, mixed multitude, the, the, the word means a web or a mixture of people. Uh, the word here, mixed multitude, is really used uh, once in the book of Exodus, then later in the book of Nehemiah. We also see it used in the book of Numbers. But in the book of Leviticus, chapter 13, it is used nine times. So that word is very rarely used, but the word uh, literally means the idea of mixed multitude is actually the word that was used in Leviticus chapter 13, uh, to, uh, the, the weaving of the wolf, uh, which is the cross, uh, crosswise thread, which goes over and under, which uh, with other threads, the, they're passed to make a cloth. So, uh, you know, I, I'm butchering this, but if you think about... Um, I guess cloth, making of cloth, you think about a, a weaving, and so you have uh, lines. I'm going to butcher this here. Some of you ladies are going to... Uh, okay, I'm doing good. Thank you. Appreciate it. But there's lines going two ways, right? And so to put a thread together, you go under, over, under, over, and you do that both ways. Uh, it's called, uh, well, the mixed motor that comes from the word wolf, W-O-O-F. And, and so, uh, so we think about a web or a mixture... Uh, interweaving, and uh, so we think about the thread that goes across the length of a piece of cloth, and so understand here, when we're talking about a mixed multitude, we're talking, yes, about one unit, but we're talking about a unit that's going to have an effect upon the whole. It's a mixed multitude. Uh, This mixed multitude was composed, no doubt, of people who would be in Egypt, who would be nomads, who would probably would have been in Egypt during that time of the year. Uh, Probably some foreigners would be there. And no doubt there is probably some Egyptians that are going along with the children of Israel. Now, let me give you one of the evidences. Uh, Scripture indicates to us that some of the Israelites had intermarried with the Egyptians. Uh, Go with me to the book of Leviticus in chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24. Let's look at just one example here. Leviticus chapter 24, and uh, notice with me verse 10. Leviticus 24, verse 10. The Bible says here, And the son of an Israelitish woman, whose father was an what? An Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel, and this son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. So I'm not going to go into the details. The point I'm making is there's the Scripture shows us, even later on, when the children of Israel 
are in the wilderness wanderings. The tabernacle is being instituted. The sacrifices, the law for the children of Israel when they before they enter into the land. All that stuff is given. But the Bible shows us that there were people who had married Egyptians. I think it's both ways. Men who had married Egyptian women and women who are uh, Israelite who had married Egyptian men. And so no doubt that's part of the mixed multitude uh, that is there in this, uh, in this departure uh, as they leave Egypt. Now, why would others join the children of Israel? I think that we can give probably some common reasons. First of all, for marital reasons. Uh, if your spouse is leaving... You're going with him, all right? Uh, that's a good thing. Probably also for monetary reasons. They're not just leaving. They're leaving with, after the land has been decimated, they're leaving with all the gold and the silver. Uh, they would, some of them would probably leave for adventurous reasons. Hey, there's a challenge. We're going to leave and go to a land, a, a promised land. That, that sounds wonderful. Some people would probably leave for being discontented. With what? With, with the Egyptian government. You can imagine that, politically speaking, Pharaoh is done. I mean, he has resisted again and again and again. The people around him have said, look, let them go, let them go. Egypt is destroyed. How long are you going to do this? Uh, so there's no doubt there would be people who would leave for all kinds of reasons. There is a mixed multitude there in Egypt. Now, I do want to point out here, because now, um, certainly we're going to go there, but, but I do think it's important for us to point out, why would God tell us this right here? When He says here, this great deliverance, this great deliverance from Egyptian bondage, God wants us to know that the way they left is they left with a mixed multitude. Now, turn with me to the book of Numbers in chapter 11. The book of Numbers and uh, chapter 11. Let's look here at this chapter. We'll begin reading here in the first verse of Numbers chapter 11. So we identify this mixed multitude. And I believe that God names the mixed multitude because we're going to see them again later on. And they are going to cause some issues. Now let me be very clear. The problem for the children of Israel was not just the mixed multitude. It was Israel itself as well, the people of Israel. They, they had issues as well. But I want you to notice what God's Word says here in Numbers 11. And when the people complained, it displeased the Lord, that's Numbers 11.1, 1, and the Lord heard it, and His anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them, and consumed them that were in the uttermost parts of the camp. And the people cried unto Moses, and when Moses prayed unto the Lord, the fire was quenched. And He called the name of the place Taborah, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Verse 4. And the what? The mixed multitude. So here we read that, we would say automatically we would go back to Exodus chapter 12. Oh, that's when we read about them. The mixed multitude, that's where there are. Here they are again. So what do they do? The mixed multitude was among them, that was among them, fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said... Who shall give us flesh to eat? We remember the fish, which we did eat in Egypt freely, the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Now, you, you know that there are irrational when they say, there is nothing except this manna. <laughs> it's a contradiction. There is something then. But that's... Uh, 
when uh, somebody is given to fleshly appetites, they become irrational. There is nothing except this manna before our eyes. Verse 7, And the manna was as coriander seed, and the color thereof as the color of bdellium. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in mills and beat it in a mortar and baked it in pans and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was as the taste of fresh oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell upon it. What a miracle! And so notice here when they're complaining, this mixed multitude, they're, they're, they're saying, uh, wow, look at this miracle. We can't stand it. We can't stand this miracle. We want to have what we had in Egypt. Now remember, the mixed multitude didn't have to leave. They accompanied the children of Israel. And now they're wanting to go back. Uh, it's interesting here. Okay, so notice with me verse 4. The mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. Turn with me, hold your place there and turn with me to Psalm 78. We have a, uh, we could call this a uh, parallel passage or perhaps a commentary. Notice in uh, Psalm 78 and notice with me verse 18. Psalm 78 verse 18. Well, Let's go to verse 13, just for the context here. And he divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the waters to stand as in heap. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depth. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. Aren't those all miracles? Yeah, they, they were. And by the way, they were done before their eyes. Notice verse 17. And they, the same people who saw what God did, they sin yet more against Him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness, and they tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their what? Their lust. Numbers 11 says they fell a lusting. They asked meat, what is the reason for their lust? Yea, they spake against God, They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Behold, He smote the rock, and the waters gushed out, and the streams overflowed. Can He give us bread also? Can He provide flesh for His people? Uh, Think about that question for just a moment. They, they, In their complaint, they say, He produced water out of a rock. Can He not give us meat also? What, What are they saying? God has done miracle after miracle after miracle for us. Can't we be God now? Can we just get what we want and not what God wants for us? Turn with me. There's another portion in Psalm 106. If you're in the book of Psalm, turn with me to Psalm 106. Notice Psalm 106 and verse 14. Well, verse 11. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then believed they his words. They sang his praise. (laughs) So, the army of the Egyptians was drowned. They come on the other side. They 
put the stone and they said, tell your children what God did for you. Verse 13, they soon forgot His works. They waited not for His counsel. But what did they do? Lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. Ultimately, if we would ask ourselves for what is a a summary word of the mixed multitude and the children of Israel during the wilderness wanderings, there would be one word that keeps coming up. Lust. They, they, they lusted. They, they desired um, something that God... By the way, it's not that God didn't provide for them. They had manna every day. They had the water. They recognized those things. But understand, they got to the place where they were discontented with what God had provided for them. And they thought to themselves, well, we want something that we think is better for ourselves. We don't want, we don't want what God wants to provide for us. We want what we want. Do, do you notice here that the problem is not God? It's not that God didn't do any miracles. It's not that God didn't do any mighty deeds before them. It is that they're Understand, the lust of the human nature is often more powerful than the truth and the evidence of God's power. That is how strong the lust of man is. Because in one sentence they say, we know what God has done, but we want this. Why? Because we want it. If you go back with me to Numbers 11, if you have your place there, a little later in the chapter. Numbers 11. <clears throat> Notice verse 31. Numbers 11, verse 31. And there went forth a wind from the Lord and brought quails from the sea and let them fall by the camp as it were a day's journey on this side and as it were a day's journey on the other side round about the camp and as it were two cubits high upon the face of the earth. That's a lot of food, by the way. A lot of food. And the people stood up all the day and all that night and all the next day and they gathered the quells all day, all night. That's a lot of quells. <laughs> he that gathered least gathered ten homers and they spread them all abroad for themselves round about the camp. And while the flesh was yet between their teeth, ere it was chewed, the wrath of the Lord was kindled against the people and the Lord smote the people with a very great plague. Why? Because of their lust. Because of their lust. Now, I, I want you to... Actually, I'll, I'll end with that. I'm going to end with uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because Paul references this. So let me... If you would take a short break as to... When we think about they leave with a mixed multitude, the number of the multitude, the composition of the multitude, but also we, we notice the, the anticipation of the multitude. If you go back with me to Exodus chapter 12, in Exodus chapter 12, notice with me in verse 39, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt, for it was leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared themselves any victuals. The Bible says here, notice, they, they obviously 
left in a hurry. They, they didn't have time to prepare. The Bible says, right, they baked unleavened cakes of the dough which they brought forth out of Egypt. Remember, that night they were to begin the Feast of Unleavened Bread and they had to get rid of all the leaven in their houses. So there is no, and they don't have time to go get leaven. They, they're leaving immediately, hurriedly, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not tarry, neither had they prepared for themselves any victuals. So, the multitude here, we see, I think, not only their number, their composition, but also their anticipation. What, I, what I'm saying is that with that great number, there's going to be problems. With that type of composition, there's going to be great problems. And also with that type of anticipation, they didn't really have time to prepare for the trip. Scripture seems to indicate to us. So there has to be an anticipation that, well, God has brought us out and God's going to provide for us. We, we didn't have time to prepare. If you take a trip and it's going to be a days or several weeks trip, you prepare for that. You think about food, you think about shelter, you think about closing. They didn't have time. And so there's an anticipation, understand, that they really don't know what to expect. But I'm sure there are some expectations. Do you not think? That we think it, it, when we leave, it, it's going to be this way. And we're going to have this, and this is going to work out, and, and we're going to arrive in the promised land, and, and this is what's going to happen. And, and by the way, uh, right, they're leaving prematurely, and they have the idea that they're going to soon be in the promised land, and uh, the promised land is going to be given to them, and they're going to have a land flowing with milk and honey, and it's just not going to happen that way. You know, and I, I think uh, when we think about ourselves, I think that sometimes we expect things and anticipate things from God that are not in His timetable, but they are on our timetable. And when we have an expectation that is unreasonable, it's almost like we want God to do certain things on our timetable when we want, not when He has designed and ordained. So, they leave with massive substance. They leave with a mixed multitude. But lastly, they leave with a momentous reminder. Notice in Exodus 12, and um, verse 40. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. In verse 31 he mentions that it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went, uh, went out from the land of Egypt, in, uh, it is a night to be much observed, uh, that night, the night of the Passover. And so, what, what do we have here is, we see that they're going to leave with a momentous reminder. Notice, I think the reminder is threefold. Because we're attaching this departure to what? The prophecy. God prophesied about this moment. Remember, in this prophecy, we see here an emphasis on its fulfillment. Because the Bible mentions here in verse 40 that the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. Well, that was prophesied. If you go back to uh, Genesis chapter 15, it, it was prophesied that they would be in bondage for 400 years. 
And here the, the scripture tells us that this prophecy in Genesis chapter 15 given to Abraham is fulfilled today. Now, in this prophecy, notice it's interesting the wording that he uses. He says, now, the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt. Now, note those two words. There's the word sojourning and the word dwelt. Sojourning is a word that emphasizes the temporary nature of their time in Egypt, that they were just passing through, while the word dwelt emphasizes the permanent nature of their time in Egypt. So it seems that their time was permanent, but it was not. So what, this is what the verse says. It says, here is the record of the passing of those who settled. It is the, the time when the children of Israel who were, they were just sojourning based upon the prophecy we know before that it was appointed for them to be there for 400 years and so they were just passing through and, but they had got to the place where they had dwelt in the land, where they had settled it. They thought they got to the place where they thought they would never leave. And you know, that's often the distinction between God's perspective and man's perspective. God says they're just sojourning. They thought they were dwelling. And there is a sense, I think it applies to us today. We are pilgrims and strangers in the earth. We are just passing through. And it is incumbent upon all of us to understand that God's perspective about our lives is we're just passing through. And we better make sure that we are not dwellers of the earth and that we make the earth our permanent abode and think it is our permanent abode. It is not. By the way, we talked about this morning, the world passeth away and the lives thereof. But he that doeth the will of the Father abideth forever. And so we see here that this prophecy is an emphasis on its fulfillment uh, that they would just be sojourning uh, through the land. But also in verse 41... We see that in this prophecy, we see an emphasis on its timetable. He says here, And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass. God did what He did on the exact day that He appointed. Not sooner, not later, but the exact day. By the way, that is remarkable, isn't it? Now sometimes people say, well, there seems to be a contradiction in the Bible. People often do that. They say, well, you know, the prophecy in Genesis 15 mentions 400 years. Here it mentions 430 years. Well, the Bible does that on the number of occasions where it gives a round number, 400. It doesn't say it's going to be exactly 400 years. They're going to dwell in the land for 400 years. Here, we know what the exact table, timetable is. It's 430 years to the day. And it is exact. And it's interesting that the critics, those who criticize the Bible, they can't wait to find something like that. that seems to be a contradiction. It says, well, see, God prophesied that He would do something in 400 years, but then He did it in 430 years. Do you listen to yourself? You're actually attacking God because He fulfilled a prophecy not in 400 years, but in 430 years? But well, that's the typical, typical skeptic. They ignore what they're saying. The fact that God would fulfill prophecy to the day is quite amazing. So in this prophecy, we see an emphasis on its fulfillment. We see an emphasis on its timetable. But also, in this prophecy, we see an emphasis on its fulfiller. Do you notice verse 42? 
they leave and verse 42, it is a night. What night? The night of the Passover. To be much observed unto the Lord for bringing them out from the land of Egypt. This is that night of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generations. Notice two things. It is a night to be much observed unto the Lord. So the night, understand, the night is not about the freedom, it's about God. Now you would imagine that the flesh would say, Hey, this is the night where we were made free. No, he says, this is the night of the Lord. It's not your night. It's the Lord's night. He says, in the second part of the verse, this is that night, notice, of the Lord to be observed of all the children of Israel in their generation. So they leave with a momentous reminder. By the way, this reminder is going to be found all throughout the Old and also the New Testament. The observation of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We spend a lot of time on that. As much as I want to, de- I want to speak of it and of its uh, wonderfulness again, uh, I've already dealt with it a number of times. But I do want to go back as we think about the general outline here that they're, they're leaving the land. This is a summary of their departure. They leave with a massive substance. They leave with a mixed multitude and they leave with a momentous reminder of how God has fulfilled the prophecy to the very word, to the very day. And it is what God has done. Man is not to get the glory to say, well, look at what we have done. They have to say, look at what God has done. But this mixed multitude, I want you to turn with me as we think about this mixed multitude. And, I, and the reason why I do this is, all right, we, we, we are not in the Exodus today. What is written, it's, it's, it's um, written for us. It's not written about us, but it is written for us. So, so what should we learn from that? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians in chapter 10. Let's try to uh, make some application tonight. You know, that's, uh, that's always the, the challenge when we come to God's Word. We, we have to be careful that we don't make application where it doesn't need to be applied. But there is a point of application here. Now let's keep in mind the mixed multitude. Notice with me 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye would be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about the Exodus. They passed through the sea... The waters were parted. The cloud was leading them. So they have that record. So we know what we're talking about here. Verse 2. And we're all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. There's kind of a picture of baptism there as they go down through the sea and then come back out under the water and come back out. That's at least what he is telling us here. They were baptized unto Moses. And did all eat the same spiritual meat. And, and so again, here this is important because what they were doing was not just intended to be a physical thing. There was an intent... For it to be spiritual. Notice verse 3. And did all eat the same spiritual meat. Verse 4. And did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that 
followed them, and that rock was Christ. You see, the whole thing was not about the physical supply. The book of Deuteronomy says that I provided manna for you every day so that you would know that man will, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I did what I did for you so that you would understand that you must be dependent upon me every day of your life. He says, verse 5, But with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, the context of 1 Corinthians, who is he writing to? He's writing to believers. Now, no doubt he mentions them as being carnal, but nonetheless, they are believers. And he says, look, that what we have the record of this mixed multitude that, that came out of Egyptian bondage. It stands for us as an example to the same intent. Now, what, how do we apply this to us today? To the intent that we also should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Remember the word that keeps coming back up about this mixed multitude? He says, verse 7, Neither be idolaters as were some of them. As is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Verse 8, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. You remember those days? They committed idolatry. Uh, they committed uh, whoredom. Verse, uh, verse 9, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Verse 10, Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Verse 11, Now all these things happen unto them for in samples. And they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Ooh, he's writing to believers. Now, I know we are not the direct recipients of the physical deliverance from Egyptian bondage of a physical promised land that was promised to us and about uh, the 400-year uh, bondage in Egypt and the, the timetable, but we are part of another timetable. You say, well, what is that timetable? That's the timetable of uh, Jesus Christ. That in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ was made of a woman, made under the law. That He might do what? That He might redeem us unto God. And there's no doubt that when we think about uh, the prophecy of Jesus Christ all throughout the Old Testament, we know of the prophecies of Christ. Uh, we know of when He would be born in the book of Daniel. We know of where He would be born in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we know of how He would be born. He would be born of a virgin. We know where He would go after He would be born. He would spend some time in Egypt and, and come back. Uh, we know that it would be in Bethlehem. We know all those things. And so when Jesus Christ comes, He is the fulfillment of the prophecies of God concerning the redemption of man. Now, our redemption is much greater than the redemption of Israel because their redemption, in the sense, was a physical unto a promised land. But our redemption is spiritual in that our sins have been forgiven. We understand that the Passover 
could not forgive their sin. The blood of bulls and of goats cannot take away sin. It is only the blood of Jesus Christ. These were shadows of things to come. But yet they experienced a physical deliverance. And as we live in this world, the truth is we, we, we still are in the midst of a, in the sense of a mixed multitude. That there are, are people around us. Sometimes people may even call themselves Christians. And in the book of Corinthians here, we see that the things that we read about in Exodus chapter 12 and Numbers chapter 11 are written for our admonition. They are written for our learning. And uh, what do we learn from that? Well, we learn this simple truth is where are we trying to find satisfaction? Where are we trying to find what we need today? Can I put it this way? Where do we find the strength to live another day? In the physical sense, in the wilderness, he says, right? They had water. They had food given to them daily. They had the presence of God guiding them throughout the wilderness wanderings. Uh, they had all that they needed in God. God provided everything that they needed, even though they were not in the promised land, even though they were wandering, they didn't know what would come tomorrow, but they had to live in dependence on God today. And somewhere along the line, those people who saw the great miracles of God who saw the prophecies fulfilled, somewhere along the line, these people fell a-lusting. They began to murmur. They began to look at the world and the things of the world that the world could offer them. They started looking to how the things of this world, the earthly things, could satisfy them. And all along, they were missing what God was offering to them today. And they were missing it. Somewhere along the line, these people thought, God can no longer satisfy. I'm going to have to find satisfaction somewhere else. First Corinthians 10. Verse 11. Now all these things happen unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let, hi let him that thinketh he standeth Take heed lest he fall. And then notice verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape, that ye me may be able to bear it. You see the problem with them as it is Notice mentioned even in verse 10. There neither murmur ye. Now here he is. We know what the children of Israel did in the wilderness. And he says to the believers then in Corinth. He says, don't you murmur like them. As some of also of them murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Murmuring, idolatry, fornication. It's interesting that he would say, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. What, what does that mean? Well, 
if we're not careful, I believe that we learn to live. We learn to live without needing God. God gives us what we need today. He says it's available. Here's water. Here's bread today. It's there. But somewhere along the line, we go astray, and our life is going just fine. But we've learned to live without God, and sometimes we don't even realize it. And we begin to complain and murmur, and things happen in our lives, and it doesn't go on the way we think it ought to go. But him that thinketh he standeth, take heed lest he fall. There, there is a sense, I, I, I really believe that the Christian life is described not by confidence, but by dependence. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? That our lives is not defined by confidence, but by dependence. The problem here is, there is a problem if you think you're standing in your own strength. There's a problem if you think, if you live your life in self-sufficiency, where you think that you do not need God. So if you think you're standing, take heed, because you're about to fall. Learn to live in dependence on the Lord. So he says in verse 4, And did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Everywhere they went, every day they lived, they had the opportunity to drink. They had the opportunity to eat. That was a representation of Christ. Remember what Jesus told his disciples? That was the hard saying. He says, if you will not eat my body, my flesh, and if you will not drink my blood, ye cannot be my disciple. He's not talking about his physical body and his physical blood. He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. Many people on that day left him. And he looked to his disciples and says, Will you also go? And what did Peter say? He says, To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. You see, the most dangerous place that you can find yourself is the place and the time when you don't need God. So you understand, I'm not saying you're doing the wrong thing. It begins by thinking you don't need God. You don't need to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out. You don't need the water that He has for you today. You, you can learn to live independent of God. And that's the great tragedy that we can all face. And so may we learn those things say well let, let's so so what should we turn our attention to well back in in Exodus chapter 12 he began by saying that they left with a great blessing with massive substance truth is when we were redeemed god gave us many more blessing than just freedom he gave us an opportunity to serve him he gave us provision he gives us everything that we need and I think if we realize at some point He gives us even more than we think we deserve. And all of that is based on what God did for us. 
And so we have to be careful about the aspect of the mixed multitude and how we're learning to live in this freedom.